Hello everyone, I'm Therese Bottomley, editor of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. This is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Today I'm talking to two reporters who have been working for weeks on a package of articles about Oregon's mental health crisis. Joining me today are Jayathi Ramakrishnan and Nicole Hayden. Jayathi has covered the Oregon State Hospital for many months, and Nicole is our reporter who focuses on homelessness. Jayathi and Nicole, welcome back to Beat Check. Thanks, Therese. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us back. So, Jayathi, let's start uh, with how the idea for this uh, reporting project on mental health came about. Sure, I would love to. Uh, I had been reporting on the state hospital for a couple of years, but I hadn't had a lot of time to explore other aspects of the state's mental health system or what happens to people after they leave the state hospital. Uh, But through my reporting, I had gotten to know various patients, family members, and mental health advocates, and someone reached out to me. It's now close to a year ago that I heard from this person um, about a former patient who had recently been released from the state hospital and had nowhere permanent to live. So that kind of caught my eye. Uh, You know, it seemed pretty egregious that they had just gone through many years in this state mental institution that's supposed to provide some sort of rehabilitation, but they were essentially back at square one. So I started looking into that particular situation, and that revealed that there's this cycle that many patients experience going between jail, the state hospital, and homelessness. And so in looking at this one patient's experience, I started to hear from sources that this is in fact a pretty common problem. So that kind of set me on the path of trying to understand why it's so hard to find community care or services uh, once someone leaves the state hospital, but maybe still needs some support. Uh, And it also became clear to me that the state hospital is only of one small slice of the state's mental health system. And it was important to get a better understanding of the rest of it. And as you're uh, your article noted um, the idea was that the government would de-emphasize institutional settings for the mentally ill, and the concept was the community care would step in and, and take its place and provide um, provide care to people in the community, and we know that really hasn't happened. But the story of disinvestment in institutions has been told before, as, as you noted, going back many administrations. So how did you approach this reporting challenge of making it fresh and new for readers? I think it really came down to the the people that I talked to. I think there's always going to be this story of the institutions failing or the systems failing, but what really makes it relevant and new is hearing the individual stories of people. And so I think being able to talk to three former state hospital patients who had fairly recently gone through that experience was far and away the most important part. And it's kind of a challenge because as I note in the story, people who are recently out of the state hospital don't always have a stable place to live or reliable means of contacting others. And so, you know, that that could have been a lot more of a challenge. And, and it was at times, you know, trying to schedule things or trying to reach people. Uh, but I was really fortunate to be able to connect with some mental health advocates who were good liaisons. And that made it a lot easier to hear from patients themselves. And so I think another thing that made this story compelling was hearing from people who, while they're all 
somewhat recently out of the state hospital. They had pretty different backgrounds and pretty different mental health issues that led to them getting sent to the state hospital. But despite their varying experiences that that led to that point, they all had pretty similar challenges when they left. So, and that was, you know, a lack of a, of a concrete plan from the state or from, from those who were supposed to be kind of setting things up for them for what was going to happen afterwards, um, feeling unprepared to live on their own. And I think in all of the cases, feeling like almost more traumatized when they left the state hospital than when they entered. And so I think that hearing those very different stories all kind of leading to a similar place really helped illustrate how those systemic problems can play out. Nicole, the second part of the series uh, dealt with how Oregon, the state of Oregon in general, is ranked very low in terms of services uh, for helping the mentally ill. So tell us about what you found. Yeah, we found Oregon ranks as one of the worst states in the country at addressing people's mental health needs. And that was determined based on investigating um, how many people in the state report having a mental illness and their ease of accessing care. And we rank so terribly, primarily because um, our residents have one of the highest rates of self-reported mental illness, uh, with 27% of adults indicating such. Only Utah ranked worse than us. Um, And in our reporting, uh, we also found that Oregon has a lot of trauma and psychosis um, comparable to places like Appalachia. Um, And our local experts here surmise that could be from decades of generational poverty, possibly the everlasting effects of the exit of the timber industry, um, and just how uh, the lack of mental health resources when people can't access the, what they need, it compounds symptoms and kind of exasperates things. And a small thing that um, maybe started off as uh, easy to handle diagnosis can kind of escalate into something uh, more severe like psychosis. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Oregon had a very strong timber economy where people with a high school education could make family wage jobs and um, have a career in the local mill. Mm-hmm. And uh, many decades ago, that blew up and people lost that uh, ability. Mm-hmm. And it did fundamentally change Oregon's economy and Oregon's small towns. So Jadhi had talked a little bit about the difficulty of continuity of reporting mm-hmm. and finding people and connecting with them. The intersection of untreated mental illness and homelessness is pretty well known. So I'm sure that you are very familiar with that challenge as well, finding people and then finding them again to check in Mm -hmm. with them. But did you learn anything new while working on this project? I mean, does it change how you approach your beat covering Mm -hmm. people experiencing homelessness? I feel like for a long time, my beat has not just been homelessness, but uh, every story I've written also has kind of overlap with some sort of mental health systems challenge. And I think my re- my reporting just like reinforced what we have known for a long time, that there's a lack of mental health resources for everyone in the state. But for some people, um, you know, accessing that is even harder. And that 
a mental health diagnosis, sometimes that can be part of the cause of homelessness. And it's definitely something that makes it significantly harder to leave the street and find housing. Um, because, you know, what may seem like an easy task for us, you know, submit maybe a housing application. Uh, it could be very difficult and overwhelming, and maybe if someone is not in a mental state where they can, you know, logically understand that without some extensive assistance. And this is a topic uh, we plan to explore more deeply in our project, and um, that will be one of the stories coming in the next few weeks. So that's definitely a big concern uh, coming up. Excellent, Jay. The Going to that issue of solutions, I mean, what what are people talking about by way of solutions? And is this just going to go on for years and years and years? And I know that Oregon Health Authority recently did an audit of mental health services, but you know, what's what's what is the conversation around what we might be able to do about this problem? Yeah, that is also something that we're hoping to dig into in future reporting for this project. So I hope we'll have a better answer for this in the coming months. But there were a few things that came up again and again in the people that I talked to. Uh, first, funding, as you said, investment or lack thereof has been a huge problem for decades. And so there needs to be more funding and it needs to be sustained over the long term, uh, particularly for community mental health beds and services. Uh, and so it seems like the tide has started to turn. At least the last couple of legislative sessions have included some major investments for behavioral health. But advocates have said it can't just be a one-time investment or something we just focus on for a couple of years and then the problem goes away. It has to be sustained, ongoing attention to the to these issues. And I would say the other thing that came up a lot is that there needs to be more intervention at the front end. So many advocates said that there are a lot of patients who end up at the state hospital who really wouldn't need to be there if there was some sort of mental health support available to them before they got to the point of being arrested. Most of the patients in the state hospital are there through the criminal justice system. So uh, before they got arrested and charged with the crime and sent to the state hospital, uh, you know, many patients are seeking treatment long before that ever happens. And as one of the the patients that we talked to in the story says he couldn't get it. And uh, something small, like regular check-ins from a peer support person or somebody who's who's not law enforcement, who's not necessarily a clinician, but kind of can help de-escalate, uh, that could be really helpful and help a lot of patients avoid ever having to go to the state hospital in the first place. So you're right. I mean, people maybe arrested and then quickly found to be in need of acute mental health services and go to the state hospital or the judge says they're not able to aid and assist or they need to assess whether they're able to aid and assist in their defense and they go to the state hospital. But Oregon is, it's pretty hard for a family member who has someone who is suffering acutely and is not medicated. It's pretty hard for a family member to go to court and get them committed civilly to kind of force the question of medication or treatment. So is anybody talking about making it easier for uh, 
the civil commitment process to work for family members who are concerned about a loved one? People are talking about it. I didn't spend a ton of time looking into civil commitments for this story, but it, it did pop up. And you're right that for patients who haven't been charged with crimes but are found to need mental health treatment, uh, the path to the state hospital is pretty narrow. And while that might not be the only solution, but it is it is one. And in the past, a lot more of the state hospital population was these involuntary commitments for people not charged with crimes. And so there has been some discussion about it. I think the last, the legislative session that just ended, there was some, but nothing, nothing concrete from it. And some prosecutors have also expressed concern over how hard it is to civilly commit patients. So it, it is being discussed. Um, the only action I'm aware of, there was a recent court order that makes it slightly easier or like kind of relaxes the boundaries or the rules for um, committing a person civilly. But I think the patients that are in the state hospital on civil commitments is still a very, very small portion of that population. So it remains to be seen. I, like I said, I didn't do a ton of, uh, of looking into this particular issue, but from what I know, it's, it's not, not made a ton of progress forward. Now, Jaythi, you mentioned money, and Nicole, I think your reporting showed we're not spending a lot less than other states, but we're, we're, we're kind of at par, but we're not seeing the results. So what is successful? I mean, have you seen anything in your work with people experiencing homelessness, people, you know, even though we know intellectually most people with mental illness are not on the street, they're working, they're going to school, they may have depression, they may have bipolar disorder, but they are able to function and function well in many cases. But people tend to see the person in crisis on the street and wonder what can be done to help those folks. And, uh, you know, as, as Jayathi was pointing out, it's like people often wonder why can't they just hold them and you know, give them medication to get them stabilized. Yeah. Uh, what works is uh, pretty simple, but we don't really have dedicated funding for it at the moment. But what works is having enough mental health beds available where people can stay for longer periods of time, more than 72 hours or a week uh, to kind of get their medication regulated, get some other supports to help them kind of ease back into um, day-to-day life. Uh, but we often see that, you know, very few people can get a bed. And when they do, it's often that short-term emergency bed. So people get 72-hour care, and then they get booted back to the street with no support for prescription management and no consistent follow-up. Um, so while, you know, after 72 hours, they may have been lucid enough to tell the worker they don't want to stay anymore, they will soon, within 24 hours, um, go back to kind of being in a psychosis state and not being able to take care of themselves. So it's like a constant cycle. And again, like Jaythi was talking about uh, with civil commitment, we run into the question of who can make the decision of when a per- person should receive longer treatment and when can they make that decision for themselves. And that's a lot of the unhoused sources I work with, that's the biggest challenge um, that they just 
cannot take care of themselves and they are in danger, but our very specific definition um, of whether or not they are a danger of themselves doesn't really encompass what their reality is. Now, in uh, Los Angeles, there is a street medicine team that has a psychiatrist on staff that provides monthly injectable psych meds. Um, so people don't have to remember to take a daily uh, pill or they don't have to worry about losing it or some, something like that. Uh, and that helps people get to a mentally stable place so that they can make decisions for themselves. Uh, and while we have a street medicine team here, we don't have that psychiatric uh, support. So that's you know, one method, you know, that would help a few people, but overall we need, you know, a systems overhaul. Jayathi, coming back to you and humanizing the story, you were able to connect with several former patients who talked to you. So tell me about that. I mean, there must be some reluctance for people to share their struggles so publicly. Yeah, I was pretty fortunate to have, you know, three people who were willing to share their stories publicly. But yeah, there are many more who are reluctant to for, for a number of good reasons. You know, uh, some are worried about how it could affect them, you know, going forward in their, their lives for their own safety, um, finding a job, those kinds of things. And so I, I was fortunate to also connect. I mentioned that I got in touch with some mental health advocates who uh, were really helpful at connecting me with these patients. And uh, I, I was also very, you know, cognizant of the fact that they're putting themselves out there, putting their stories out there. So I was comfortable with, um, you know, trying to do it as, as much on their terms as possible. So if they wanted to have um, their advocate in the room, you know, that person was not participating in the interview, but just to have like a support person there, I was fine with that. Um, and I was also trying to be very upfront about like, after the fact, like before and after saying, this is what the story is about. It's going to go over, um, you know, the, the criminal charge that led you to the state hospital. That does not mean it's portraying you as a, as a criminal, but to, to have this context of the whole state hospital and mental health system, this is exactly what's going to be in the story. And I, I hope that helped, you know, I think not, not being surprised by what is in the story is, is the best I can do. And, you know, I don't want people to feel like I'm, um, trying to do like a gotcha. So I was very, um, I tried to be very clear and, and go over every single thing that, that I was quoting them on so that they felt like they knew what was coming. Yeah. You both brought a lot of compassion and humanity and I look forward to more. I know that you're both working on more stories and people will be able to read your work at OregonLive.com slash mental health. So thank you both for sharing your expertise. And with that, I'll call it a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Tell a friend, help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism and stories like this one is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.